this was just a combustible mix of rich, powerful, famous people having a lot of money and time on their hands to pursue the most vengeful of feuds. And that's why we're here. <laughs> Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, July 28th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about a very New York story, the Greenwich Village co-op battle from hell between the actor Justin Thoreau and lawyer Norman Resnikow. Eric has all the sordid details from this eight-year legal fight that will make you glad you don't live in a co-op building. And if you do, well, buckle up, because this story will give you the hives. And later, Tina Wynn and Ben Landy discuss the latest shakeup inside Ron DeSantis's tumultuous campaign for president. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy friday everybody it's almost august i hope you're staying cool out there i thought for friday we dig into a fun juicy story coming out of the west village i'm joined today by eric gardner to talk about the greenwich village co-op battle from hell between Justin Thoreau and longtime white shoe attorney Norman Resnikow. Eric, why should we give a shit about this? What's so interesting about it? Oh, you should uh, give a shit because it's just so sordid <laughs> and so unusual. And uh, I can't That's really the answer give I was a, looking for. <laughs> yeah, I can't give you a, a high minded explanation on this one. You just got <laughs> to trust, yeah, you you gotta trust your, your, your yeah. appetite on this one. So basically, what's going on is Justin Thoreau the uh, extremely handsome star of The Leftovers, White House Plumbers, also screenwriter. He lives on the second floor 
of a lovely 10 unit building right off of Washington Square Park. I mean, dream, dream location uh, in lower Manhattan. And on the first floor, right below him, lives an attorney named Norman Resnickow. Now, this fight between them has been going on going back to 2015, I think. So like eight years. And Resnickow is like 76 at this point and will not let this fight go. Basically, what happened was back in 2015, Thoreau was renovating his lovely apartment off of Washington Square Park. And Resnickow started hearing noises and started complaining and telling him to insulate his apartment. And in classic New York City fashion, Thoreau didn't want to do that because he didn't want to damage the original hardwood floors. Anyway, this has spiraled into like a Seinfeld level insane New York co-op battle with the board fighting Resnickow, Resnickow and Thoreau fighting each other. And now it's in court. What is the like original crux of this fight and how has it spiraled? Yeah, I mean, this is seriously could be a, an eight episode miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it, it's pretty incredible and cinematic and all that. I, you know, it just originally began two neighbors. Maybe they didn't particularly like each other. One was making home renovations. The other one was disturbed and then decided to use that opportunity to to make a request. The Norman Resnickow, he thought it was a perfectly reasonable request, put, you know, soundproofing in. Of course, it was, you know, thirty dollars or $40,000 to do that. But putting aside the fact of, of whether it was reasonable or not, uh, Justin Thoreau said no and has I think he has every right to say no. You know, someone makes a, a request like that. But Norman Resnickow didn't kind of accept it. He wouldn't move on. And he decided to, you know, basically do what lawyers do, you know, assert leverage, look for like points that he could press. Mm -hmm. The contractor was approved to go in at 9 a.m. each morning. But, you know, Norman had given his kind of implicit nod that he could show up at 8.30. Well, after this thing happened, he said, nope, you can't come in early anymore. And, you know, he pressed all sorts of buttons, you know, cutting off water access on on the roof. But the the real stickler was he put bricks down on, on the roof and said, you know, this was what the real dividing line should be. And Justin Thoreau saw that and he's like, wait a minute here. You just took 40 more square feet from me. And this just caused a big mess and it caused a fight and went to the co-op board. And then they started fighting over the stairs and the balcony and, and on and on. And it just it just blew up. So there's been accusations back and forth of these two are basically have been stalking each other and trying to photograph and document each other spying on each other. And Thoreau apparently photographed Resnickow trespassing on his property with a tape measure. <laughs> Resnickow came back accusing Thoreau of like standing on his balcony with a camera, and like yelling at him. You know, I've lived in buildings in New York, in New York City actually, and in DC that were co-op buildings, even though I wasn't owning the property. Uh, and so like, I've had a glimpse of like a little bit of that process, but I'm not a hard-o New Yorker. So <laughs> uh, it does seem like from reading your piece, though, that the co-op board here is kind of like, and Thoreau, we should say, is on the co-op board too. They're kind of fed up with Resnickow, uh, and they're like trying to force him out of the building. Is that right? 
Yeah, at this point, I think it's that many of the residents have their own stories about being yelled at by this guy and and huh. bullied to a certain extent. And you know, from what I hear, he he makes noises in his own apartment in one of the you know prisms to view the soundproofing request. In is that he was just pr- trying to protect the sounds he was making in his own apartment. So I think people are a little fed up with it. Also, there are lots of co-op disputes in New York, but you know many of them don't involve famous neighbors. And one of the interesting things here was this guy Norman calling tabloids, like calling TMZ and New York Post, and offering exclusives to them, and eventually getting the Daily Mail to come and and mm-hmm. basically gave them a video tour of the entire premises and went to the basement and he pointed. At some of the stuff that was going on there, and he's like, "Oh, there's Justin's junk," and uh, that became the headline of the tabloid story. And then the rest of the board saw that, and they're like, "Wait a minute, you're inviting reporters into our premises," and that rubbed people the wrong way. You know, in court, when it got to court, you know, he's like, "Well, I have a First Amendment right to." call any tabloid I want, which is, you know, kind of like funny and hysterical because mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, whether this thing ever comes up, but in New York, there's lots of celebrities that live. There's lots of powerful people that live. This was just a combustible mix of rich, powerful, famous people having a lot of money and time on their hands to pursue the most vengeful of feuds. <laughs> and that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. If you go into Eric's story, everyone, uh, he links to this Daily Mail piece where back in 2017, Reznikow brings a camera crew and the Daily Mail into the co-op, gives them a tour of his apartment, the exterior, the storage basement. And there are all these photos of him like pointing around like a crank. I mean, he really looks like Jerry Stiller in Seinfeld, honestly, just like complaining about everything. So it's not hard to see why the co-op board might eventually <laughs> side with Thoreau here. But as you reported, he owns like Again, I don't know co-op rules that well, like 25% of the shares of the co-op. So like, it seems like it would be difficult to force him out. What is actually being settled in court or worked out in court right now? So the board, which is, you know, all but two members of the building, they unanimously voted to terminate this guy's lease to kind of from out the building. He might own a lot of the shares of, of the building, but he still only owns one apartment and the rest of the board decide, you know, they're going to kick him out and they say that he's disrupted the community and all that. But to enforce that, they have to go to court. And so they, they're trying to go to court and to say, look, you know, this was a valid vote that we have and mm-hmm. we want to terminate his lease and throw him out and expel. To that, he's brought counterclaims. He bought his own lawsuit trying to dissolve the co-op as a corporation Hmm. because he says that he has the right to do that because he owns so many shares of the co-op. So yeah, it's kind of like in this like sticky limbo here where they're both asserting back and forth. And it makes for really entertaining hearings where, you know, this guy's lawyer, like, you know, is is, is pretty colorful in, it, in himself. And the judge is hearing these things and, and saying, like, what are you saying now? <laughs> and I, I, I feel bad for the judges who have to, like, you know, deal with this sorts of situation, because, you know, basically, we have like a, an elderly couple, and we have a famous actor, and you have a board that's trying to assert certain things. And, you know, it's, it's weird and it's an eight-year feud and all that. But, you know, these sorts of situations actually make law for lots of other people who live in co-ops because, you know, a lot of the mm-hmm. other situations never 
get so far. So this is the sort of situation that not only gets decided in court, but then goes on the appeal. And then, you know, years down the line, everyone's going to be citing the uh, the case between Justin Thoreau and Norman Resnickow because, you know, it was the one case that lasted decades and went to all these appellate levels and, you know, forced judges to figure out all these obscure things about co-op law. So <laughs> good for them for doing it for the rest of us. But for us, it's just kind of amusing and just something to watch. Well, you did. You buried the lead, though. I mean, I asked, why should people care about this? If you live in a co-op, this could impact you for years to come. We'll see if it makes it to the Supreme Court or ends up as season two of Jury Duty on Amazon. Eric, thank you so much for the juicy Summer Friday story. My pleasure. When we come back, Tina Wynn is here to discuss Ron DeSantis. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben, here with Puck's very own MAGA chief analyst, Tina Wynn. How are you doing? I'm great. Tina, you've been reporting on the blame game inside the DeSantis campaign, which is never a good sign when your campaign is only two months old and there's already a blame game the media is talking about. They've just laid off a third of their staff. I feel like the blame ought to be on the candidate himself, but talk to me about this tension that's percolating. Who is pointing the finger at whom? Oh, boy. So first of all, there are two people you can never point the finger at in this specific campaign. You cannot point it at Ron and you cannot point it at Casey. One person I spoke to pointed out that the thing about Casey DeSantis, his wife, being a chief advisor, is that no one can tell her that she's wrong and she is accountable to nobody. She can't be fired. She can't be kicked out or demoted or whatever without disrupting the balance of what goes on at the leadership level. So when that can't happen, the blame goes to the people making the decisions on hiring, the people signing the checks, telling person A to do whatever, telling person B to spend this kind of money. Right now, fairly or not, that blame is falling on Janera Peck, who is the campaign manager Uh, She's relatively untested compared to a lot of people in this field. I think this is her first national campaign that she's ever been on. But that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is the super PAC never back down, which is like a hundred million dollar plus unlimited corporate rich people donations. They can take in as much money as they want, thanks to Citizens United. And that's run by this political operative, Jeff Rowe, who... Thanks to the non-coordination clause laid out in Citizens United, preventing candidates and their campaigns from coordinating with the super PACs, they're just sort of like, all right, um, what is it that the other person needs? You're not giving us what we think we need. We can't tell you what we need. You can't tell us what you can do. We're just going to be really mad at you for not reading our mind. And that's been kind of fantastic to watch as someone who just lives for petty political drama sometimes. Yeah, you've reported before that part of the problem with the DeSantis campaign in general and their spending in particular is that Ron and Casey have formed this sort of paranoid 
distrustful sort of family office where they're ensconced in Tallahassee. They're only wanting to work with people that they know. And so they've basically built their whole infrastructure in-house instead of working with vendors and third parties that might give them better rates. And the result has been that everything is way more expensive because they are basically creating it from scratch. So, you know, they, they took in $20 million or so, but they've spent a lot of it on overhead. And as a result, they haven't had any money left over for advertising. Yeah, someone who is familiar with the what's happening inside the campaign was pretty straightforward with me and went, I don't think that they'll be able to run a TV ad in the next couple of months, which honestly, for someone about to run into their first debate and positioning themselves as the front runner take on Donald Trump, that's really bad. The way that this person put it was, if the decision is, do we send the candidate to Iowa or do we send out an email blast trying to get a crap ton of small dollar donors, which is really important distinction because Trump has built a massive fundraising machine based on small dollar donors. And they may give in five, 10, 15 bucks every given time. But if you have a lot of people who support you, that means you can keep hitting those same donors again and again and again, send out an email blast going, oh, the deep state's after me for what's happening today. And then Millions of people just hit a button and then you get a lot of money at once. Uh, Whereas DeSantis, the number of people who donated to him immediately when he announced were primarily large donors who hit the federal giving limit. And I believe only 15% of um, the people who donated were smaller dollar donors, i.e. people who donated under 200 bucks. And that's not really good as a signal of either grassroots support or how much money will be flowing into the campaign afterwards, because those rich donors are maxed out. They can't give again. Yeah, that seems like the bigger problem to me. Obviously, there's two halves of this equation. There's the money coming in, the money going out. And they've now made some changes to the campaign where... They fired a bunch of people. They're going to decrease overhead. They've said they're going to be a little bit smarter in terms of how they're spending money on fundraising, on events. But like you said, DeSantis has a financial problem in terms of his ability to raise money. He doesn't have the juice. And so he's got to rely on the super PAC, which has so much more money, which gives them a lot more power over decision making. And that's just inevitably going to set up tension between the campaign proper and this outside group. So in some level, it doesn't matter if DeSantis and his wife and the campaign manager want control. They don't have it. Jeff Rowe has it. And they can't talk to each other. And so we're left with all these different parties sort of sniping at each other in the press. Mm, For sure. The other factor that I don't think people understand, especially the people who work in these like high level Republican chess playing extremely well compensated individuals is that the idea of relying on a super PAC to run your ostensibly grassroots populist campaign goes completely against the point of why there is a grassroots populist movement to begin with. No one who is a voter at that level who's believed at some level there is a elite group of people who have coordinated to keep the election out of Trump's hands and given it to Joe Biden, the people who are cutting the cord with Fox because they think they're too corporate and that they silence Tucker Carlson. They're not going to look at DeSantis and be like, this man just spent all of his money and he's relying on this super PAC with all of these secret donations from these dark money people that are probably super rich and want to control him and will never get to know who it is. Like, we don't want that. 
And I think like it would be a fool's errand for DeSantis to try and rely on those guys as long as he wants to make a stand as a quote unquote populist MAGA leaning guy. He can say all the things, he can sign all the laws, but if he can't wean himself from the teat of unlimited corporate money because, you know, money is speech or whatever, then he is going to do fairly badly no matter how many counties in Iowa he visits. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you see the DeSantis campaign right now trying to to reposition his financial problems as a kind of selling point. And now they're saying, you know, we're running this insurgent campaign. DeSantis is an underdog. I don't know if they're going to be able to pull off that kind of PR spin. But it's interesting to me that these um, the troubles with the DeSantis campaign now are, are also as much about Jeff Rowe's own professional reputation. He has his detractors, people who say, you know, he charges too much money. He doesn't always get results. But his team has recently been pretty aggressive in their own PR moves in the press, sort of pushing back at this narrative I saw just before you and I hopped on to record here that that the Jeff Rowe team told the Post and Courier that they've they've knocked on a million doors, including across Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. So they are really trying to counter this narrative in the press and get out there that, look, we're, we're actually doing the work. We've got this huge ground game, this army of people on staff. We're really trying to get the DeSantis message out. But I do wonder if it is as much about demonstrating the value that Jeff Rowe is bringing as it is about actually providing value because the the timing of this is just so weird. I mean, usually when you do a door knocking campaign, it's closer to the election, not Mm -hmm. two months into the primary. Right, exactly. And I'll give them the, you know, benefit of the doubt because this is a very unusual campaign season. I don't really think I could find an analog to it any time in the past century where there is a popular president who has the clear lead over every other candidate who used to be president himself and who can spin his own record and history in the administration to be like, no, it was wonderful. And even though everyone's trying to indict me, that means they're just trying to shut me down. And up against someone like that, who is probably never going to shut up and who technically still could be president, even got thrown in jail. You want to get out there and make everyone know that you are a viable, if not better, option who is drama-free and presumably, you know, indictment-free. So I can sort of see the argument for sending people door-to-door to, you know, preach the good word of DeSantis. However, however, the fight between the Super PAC and the campaign itself is so early on in this season that normally you'd see this at the end of the uh, campaign season, but the fact that it's happening now with a stalled candidate who can't move forward in the polls and sometimes Trump is gaining even more and more of a lead on him, that's really telling. And I think there's more at stake here than just Jeff Rowe's reputation. It's DeSantis' reputation, and it's sort of the future of the MAGA movement. Like, can you pour a lot of money into a guy who says the right things and signs the right bills, and does that make him MAGA? Or is this just like a failed moment where a bad candidate got a little too over his skis and overambitious and, you know, made a bad decision? Here's something I've just been kind of turning over in my mind. I think good political leadership requires you to trust more than five people at once. And the fact that DeSantis is having trouble relinquishing this micromanaging tendency and not being able to share what he wants with the guy on the other side of the firewall is a sign of 
poor communication and a sign of, I don't know, at least severe mismanagement that needs to get turned around very quickly if he wants to survive. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. At stake, you've got the MAGA movement. You've got the ability of the Republican Party to to excite voters behind any other candidate besides Trump. But at the end of the day, I mean, the more we see of this guy, DeSantis himself, it just seems to become more and more clear that this guy doesn't have the juice. He's not ginning up the enthusiasm of voters. And as much as he got early support from the donor class, even they are now seeing up close and personal with this guy that he looks more like another Jeb Bush or a Scott Walker than the next Donald Trump. Mm. Tino, we've got to leave it there, but thanks as always. Appreciate your insights and we'll have you back on soon. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.